0: I have to say the uh, 186 of these and I am really tired of talking about war, inflation, uh, climate change, pestilence and all the other problems in the world. So uh, today we're going to try and switch the topic to talking about shareholder wealth creation, which is uh, actually mainly the reason why we're all do what we do is to create value and wealth um, and to help people in, in doing that. So I want to cover three things today. I want to share a report on the biggest wealth creators and destroyers uh, back to 1926. Second, I want to discuss the Magnificent Seven and their impact not only on the S&P, but also on the MSCI World Index. (laughs) And then I want to close with some thoughts on the surprising strength of the U.S. uh, economy. So let's jump right into it. For a while now, the concentration of... uh, of the top stocks driving the market has been a big topic. And this chart shows you going back to 1974, um, this has been an issue going back in time. And this looks at uh, the top 15 and uh, top five uh, largest firms and uh, uh, against the largest 1,500 companies and against the whole, whole market. And you can see that uh, obviously the concentration had been high back in the 70s, got lower, and now is back up again uh to a high level but i think the difference and we'll talk about this more as we go along is the nature of the companies that are in the top and what their impact is on the overall economy i think is a little bit different than it was back in the 70s so what is shareholder wealth creation it's really defined as the improvement or decline of wealth of a company's uh, stockholders over a period of time and with the way they calculated this report and it's done by a professor out of the university of arizona Uh, I'm sorry, of Arizona State University. And what he basically did was he looked at not just um, the stock price moves, but he added in buybacks, dividend payouts, divestitures and the like. And then he said the benchmark is for wealth is what you generated above the one month treasury bill. And in their report, they looked at 28,000 companies. And uh, those 28,000 companies during that time created basically $55 trillion of wealth um, ironically forty one percent of those companies created uh, sixty four trillion of that 54 trillion of wealth um, with fifty eight percent of the companies destroying wealth to the tune of nine trillion dollars so you've seen a uh, historically a very skewed uh, way and wealth creation is has been concentrated over time it has actually gotten a little more concentrated recently and I think that's due to the nature of the companies that are driving it but I think you're gonna see uh, concentration continue. So this shows you going back to 1926, the top 10 companies in value creation, or wealth creation going back in time, and the cast of characters at the top are no surprises. What was a little bit of a surprise, and this report was done on the US market, what is a surprise is is really that Berkshire's still up there after all this time. Um, Exxon's been the only one that's been in there Exxon and Chevron were there back to 1926. Procter Gamble came in in 29. But if you notice, the rest of them all come in in the 80s and 90s for the most part, other than Berkshire. So it's a very interesting uh, dynamic there. So big wealth creation, as you can see, in the trillions uh, for the top couple. On the wealth destroyers, uh, or value destroyers going back to that time, WorldCom at the top of the list. Uh, Interestingly, you have Rivian who is made second on the list in a uh, one-year period. And as I said, these numbers go from 26 to the end of 22. And you can see the banking crisis led to some problems. Some tech wrecks along the way uh, were part of the problems as well. This next report, uh, next page shows you uh, wealth creation from, or declines, actually from 2016 to 2022 with GE, Rivian, DuPont, DuPont. Copang, and then craft at the top of the list there. And then looking at the pandemic period where you had Meta, Intel, uh, Disney, Amazon, uh, and Rivian all at the top of the list there in in terms of wealth destruction with pretty significant losses uh, being occurring in that period. <clears throat> so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the MSCI World Index and um, and share the wealth creation as it relates to that. And this is an index for the developed economies, so it does include Europe and uh, any developed nations around the world, Japan. Um, it is about a $55 trillion index. Um, it has 1,500 um, constituents, um, the smallest being a little over $900 million, and the largest being Apple. So they dominate the Magnificent Seven are getting a lot of attention. They've dominated the uh, S&P, but also the uh, MSCI World Index as well. And just to give you a sense, um, the seven largest companies added 4 trillion in market cap, um, which compares to the gains to the MSCI as a whole of 3.4 trillion. So the MSCI as a whole, X, those companies lost $600 billion last year. So you can just see the weight and the dominance that these guys have. They have a significant market cap. Their average weighted growth rate, which is really the key to to what's driving them, I think, is one of the keys, is 23%. Their price earnings is high and has come down, but it's still almost uh, double what the market is. But I think the real issue that's really driving these guys is the strength of their balance sheets and the investments that they've made in the future. In the past, they really took advantage of the zero interest rates to Um, make the big investments for the future that they could because they were generating massive cash flows that the other companies couldn't. So I think the real issue here is the strength of their balance sheet, the positioning that they have, and also the impact that these guys have had in changing how the world works. So U.S. stocks have dominated the global markets, and this is just a percentage of their all-company index. And you can see from a low around 2009 of 40%, it's now up to 60% of the companies dominating the world index. So when you wanna get away from the S&P and go into the MSCI world, you're really not adding that much more uh, divergence of exposures when you just look at the US company weightings being so big. And here are the top 10 companies in the MSCI world. And yes, they're all US companies. Um, There have been uh, several European companies in over time, but they've uh, fallen by the wayside over the last couple of years, particularly given some of the challenges that they're facing in Europe and their leading companies. Um, But you do see one of the largest historic gaps in terms of the valuations of the non-U.S. companies versus the U.S. companies. And I would just say trade carefully around this because I think there's a lot of value traps being created. You just saw that uh, Siemens, which is... Phenomenal corporation, a great company, but has not been a great stock, announced last week that they might need subsidies from the government of around $16 uh, billion dollars to help with their wind uh, projects uh, problems. And that decli- led to a decline of about 35% in a day in the stock. So you can see some of the challenges that are creating the values are not necessarily the things going to drive growth forward. So you have to really be careful about how you're investing here. Um, We have had a significant rise in concentration. As you can see from 2010, we're more than double uh, the top 10 largest stocks as their concentration in the index. Um, That did pull back a little bit uh, with the pandemic, but then took off again um, with the war uh, occurring. So we do have this setup where the big continue to get bigger. And I think that's going to be uh, something we're gonna see for some time. So switching gears to the U.S. and the U.S. strength, which has been surprising and continues to surprise. We just popped the 4.9% uh, GDP for the uh, Q3 numbers that were produced. So we have very strong uh, uh, GDP growth. We have full unemployment, uh, full employment. Um, the labor negotiations are yielding big returns, 25% increases or more for the, for the uh, auto workers which will lead to increases coming for other companies that are non-union just because of the competitive nature of what's going on. You're seeing inflation coming down quite a bit and uh, the Europe just popped a nice number below 3% on their inflation and earnings still are pretty pretty strong but very divergent and you're seeing big swings in the haves and have nots here. So I think that's something you want to continue to watch as to how how divergent they is, that things are inside the market. But we're doing this while there's still some big problems out there. You have the wars in Europe and, and the Middle East. You have the Washington dysfunction, which continues. And even though we have a speaker for the House finally, I'm not sure that that's going to calm things down as much as it might stir some things up again. We do have, uh, you know, fiscal policy has run amok and we do have massive deficits that have to be dealt with. Dead vulnerabilities are picking up. And I think you're starting to see companies um, that reflected in company reports is what their debt vulnerabilities are. And, um, we have some big, uh, maturities coming in the next three years and who's going to be able to absorb that and which companies are going to be able to deal with higher debt costs at the same time. They need to make big investments to be competitive. I think is something we're going to see. I think there is an adjustment to higher rates that, um, we're still going through. And as much as we've talked about it for a while. I don't think people really came to grips with the higher rates being staying up for longer for until now. And when the Fed comes out of this meeting, whether they raise rates or lower rates a bit, I don't think it really matters. I think what matters is the process we're going through, that 5% really is here to stay and that, uh, or certainly for an extended period, and the likelihood of going back to zero interest rates is low. And therefore, we really have to wake up to how do we price our, how do our uh, companies look on a valuation basis? at 5% versus zero, we're still adjusting to. I mentioned this GDP was strong and uh, this has been a surprise. I think the U.S. continues to suck capital out of the rest of the world. And as we do that with our rate differential for the developed nations, that's gonna continue to bring capital into the U.S. But one of the keys to the hidden strength of the U.S. is consumer net worth. And this is a look at household net worth going back to 2008 where we were just under $60 trillion. And look at it today, where we're back up, closing in on $150, $145 trillion of net worth in that 13-year, uh, 15-year period. That is a massive increase in net worth that is what is really supporting this system for some time. I think what you'll hear from Powell today is, or tomorrow is that um, conditions are doing quite well. Uh, they remain surprised by the strength. That's one of the things he talked about at the economics club. With all the tightening that's going on, and this is the proxy rate for the San Francisco Fed, which would say that we are closing in on seven percent interest rates, not um, uh, under five percent interest rates. When you really look at the effective rate of quantitative tightening, and I think the three balance sheet, the balance sheets for the four largest uh, uh, developed market central banks have come down almost $8 trillion in the last year, which is a significant tightening of conditions. If you think about mortgage rates doubling, significant tightening of conditions, bank lending standards tightening, significant tightening of conditions. And if you're trying to go and refinance corporate debt right now, you know what a significant tightening of conditions is that's going on. So I think you have two sides of the coin for the Fed. You have a very strong economy in the U.S attracting a lot of capital from around the rest of the world, with consumers starting to feel the pain of the increased wage costs and the tightening conditions that are going on. But the overall strength, because the stimulus that's been put through has continued to offset some of the negative headlines, but that doesn't go on forever. And I think at some point we're going to wake up to a significant slowing of the economy, but it's not here right now because of the overstimulation that's gone on in the system. So I think there are countries that will benefit, sectors that will benefit, companies that are going to benefit, areas to avoid, but I want to talk about the three things that I think may surprise people uh, coming into the end of the year. We've had a very difficult uh, November, October. Thank God it's over. Um, We always have, we typically have tough Octobers and Septembers. Um, The S&P and the NASDAQ were uh, in correction territory coming into this week. They rebounded yesterday, but still a 10 percent decline was expected and needed. Um, I think if we believe that rates are peaking, which I think we're getting closer to peak rates, and if we believe that China is getting closer to bottoming um, and add to it, the third factor is if the conflicts in the Middle East do remain somewhat contained, which is really the market is reacting right now, is if that's the case. I think that's a very vulnerable uh, uh, premise to to support. But if you get these things moving this direction, I believe that the oversold conditions in the market will lead to uh, some surprising strength coming into the end of the year, uh, but it won't be broadly um, uh, benefiting companies. I think it'll be in the areas that we're focusing on of uh, healthcare, tech, industrials, uh, and both sides of the renewable trade uh, and the, fossil- the energy transition trade and industrial materials. So Mark, I'm gonna stop there and open it up for questions, comments, and
1: discussion. Thank you, Steven. Questions? Adam, you know, we're going to have, we're having a year in awards, Adam. And you're up for the uh, first question.
0: <laughs> and Mark, I just wanna add that somebody put a note it wasn't on topic, so I think they're new. So anything is on topic for this part of the, the session. So. Stephen, uh-huh. thank you yep, for your sir.
2: presentation. Um, my question, and this has come up before about the the net worth, consumer net worth. Um, what does that really mean? I mean, there the disposable income is really what I would think is what's needed for the consumer to drive the economy. <laughs> and with all the boomers retiring and you've got trillions of dollars where they're spending and transferring. What significance is the net worth really?
0: well that that actually is what's allowing them to continue to spend. and one of the one of the changes that's going on in the economy that's really one of the I think one of the bigger challenges of understanding how we come out of this is the fact that you now have these boomers with sixty trillion dollars of net worth to spend, that they have the time to spend it because they're not working now, that's creating a new buyer that's offsetting the weakness of the low-end consumer. So it's actually an offset that's a positive offset. How long that goes on is really the issue. And it gets to the complexity of the housing market and all that because a lot of the net worth is in the housing and in stocks. So it's created, it's added to the inequality and it highlights some of the inequality, but it actually is what's part of what's supporting the system through this transition, which is somewhat difficult. So just a quick follow-up. So it's, so it's the middle class and the working class that are being squeezed? Yes, the bottom the bottom 80%. Okay, thank you, Stephen. Although what, what is helping that too is an offset is you get these 25% wage increases coming through that do help offset that, but it's still a makeup from where they were before, but it's, it's a lot better and that does offset some of their pressures, but it doesn't necessarily keep them up. Um, so they are falling behind anyway.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Walter? Stephen.
3: Stephen, a quick, quick question. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation again today, Stephen. You're welcome. Um, you mentioned in your presentation that Siemens in its effort to go renewable with wind is going to seek some government bailout, if you wish, uh, from, from their government, from the German government. Um, we're seeing similar things happen in the automotive industry, for example, with the EVs. Do you foresee that we may be in a situation where some of these companies are looking for government bailouts as well?
0: Well, our, ours already got them. <laughs> so wait. <laughs> so uh, I think they're going to have a hard time getting another one, um, to be honest with you. But I think the issue for them is, um, and the, we were just in, in one of our investment meetings talking about it because we do like both sides of the transition, but um, the question is what is going to be the car of the future and when, um, you know, the EVs are declining right now and they're uh, it looks like the hybrids and the ices are continuing. So we're in one of those funny periods that um, these guys are going to have to be very nimble and flexible. And I think the the strategic decisions they make now are going to be, with them for a long time and will define who wins and who loses. I think we're, with the technologies are so all over the place right now that we don't really know what the outcome is going to be and when all is said and done. Thank
2: you. Yeah, fascinating to see the Rivian. Uh, we knew they weren't doing well, but wow, not well.
0: Well, you know, it's it's funny that. We've had this discussion when the meme stocks were going on, but about, and the movie came out about dumb money or smart money, whatever they call the movie, I don't even know. But the reality is when we're in a speculative business, that we're always looking at, you know, what we think is going to happen in the future. And when we buy a stock and you just don't know, and, and new businesses are new for a reason. And the outcomes are often, you often see a lot of short time, big losses. And then you have the, Longer term, big losses that come when you're destroying wealth. Um, it doesn't necessarily, you don't need a long time to figure out how to destroy wealth, apparently.
1: Steve, uh-huh. I might have missed it. Oh, wait, um, Roger. Then- Roger, sorry. Thanks, you, Mark. Just raise your hand when you, when you want to. Oh, sorry. anna has got her hand up. Go, on, go ahead. On. Uh,
3: yes, Kevin, just wanted to add on the EV5 had a, an electric vehicle as a rental for a couple of weeks while my car was in the shop. And this is a perfect example of great product being developed but the infrastructure not being in place. Just charging the car, it takes so much time just, just to find the charger. If you're on the road, it's just totally impossible. You can do it through an app. And it's so unproductive. So it's a, I think it's a perfect example when the companies would take like a minimal viable product out there but the infrastructure is not supported and the market perception now is so much down because of that. So the adoption is now going downward and for it to pick up again, it's going to take so much more improvement and so much more investments. So thank you for bringing that up, Walter.
0: Well, it's it's interesting. The uh, I think it was Toyota is, is working on a solid state battery that may get charging in 10 minutes for EVs, in which case you'd have the counter to what you were just—the frustration you just described, Anna—being resolved, and that will could really see a pickup in that. But right now, you are seeing it go the other way. The uh, initial mm-hmm. enthusiasm uh, and the level of patience that we have in the U.S. is being uh, offset by that. So, I think that's—I think that's really the hard part about making investments in this area is you're going to have to be pretty nimble.
1: Ma- Maxwell, just to actually. Two seconds, Roger. Did you want to make a point?
0: Well, just a quick question. Thank, thanks, thanks, Stephen. I might,
4: I might have missed it. That was a little, a little late going. Um, do, do you have a chart that kind of shows the Magnificent Seven their performance over time vis a vis the rest of the market? X the Seven. Did you have that slide, or did I miss uh, it?
0: No, I don't have that performance slide right now. Um, but I do I know, know you that, um, yeah. if you looked at the. Uh, S&P versus the S&P value index, Um, the S&P value index would be uh, around 8% lower, I think, uh, was where it was this morning, somewhere around there. So it's a significant discount um, to the rest of the market in terms of its performance. I think I mentioned the seven overall, uh, Roger, uh, added to the MSCI World Index $4 trillion and the overall index is up three
4: point four trillion yeah the yeah. reason i asked you i remember remembering COVID, um i think when the uh, summer of twenty when obviously the market went in a well a direction I didn't think it was going to go it went up i don't remember I, I i saw this statistic that said that um the the fang stocks which were effectively the seven you, you're referring to um they accounted for or no sorry ninety five by number ninety five percent of the companies on the S P p were actually down, even though the market was on fire. And that was had to do to the fact that the FANG or the Magnificent 7 were putting the market up. So even though the, the, everybody thought the market was going up, but 95% of the companies by number were actually lower than they were March of 2000, which is a, a phenomenal statistic.
0: Yeah, we're, we are going the other way. Um, the, I think the uh, you, the divergences are going to continue to grow between the 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 rich and the poor.
1: Michael, before you and Andrew go, Mac- Maxwell had his physical hand up.
2: Hey, just a simple, maybe I'm just naive and don't fully understand. When a stock loses money, that's a liquidity event. So does money, It, I mean, from the presentation, it sounds like money just disappears. But when people are making money, you know, obviously people are losing money. And when people lose money, somebody's making money. How does that work? So $9 trillion in losses. But isn't that somebody else's gain?
0: Yeah, but it's, whether
2: it's a company they spent too much money with, or some some other category. Well,
0: let me step back. They started with, in it, yes, it is a zero. It, somebody bought what somebody sold, so there was somebody yeah. on the other side of the every every ticket. What they did here was they took the starting point when the company came into business and figured out the total value when you add it back in dividends and. Um, mm. buybacks and divestitures and the like that don't always get caught tracked in the stock price, um, so they actually did a more comprehensive view of that, but it's really each company was their value grow or, or decline over time based on the invest, invested dollars, and I think that's what they were looking at, so gotcha. Um, I think that's really the right way to think about it.
1: It's terrific, thank you. By the way, Maxwell, what what are you doing for lunch on Thursday?
2: No plans at the moment. Happy to join oh. anything you're up to.
1: Come to join us. We're at, we're at Stephen's offices, 44th and 5th. Uh, oh, excellent. I live right here. 12 to one thirty. Anna, are you going to come in?
3: Yes, I am joining. Thank you.
1: And Joe, where I, I have visit. no idea where you are, Joe Azaro. Are you within striking distance? I am, I'm in Brooklyn, yeah, okay,
4: so possibly on Thursday, I'll see you guys. Let me see what's going on, okay,
1: all right, Michael Hammer
2: so Stephen very interesting and provocative presentation, but I was thinking about Apple because they were listed as like number one yep. and when you look at time frames, depending on the time frame that you look at and pick um so, for example, Apple was a destroyer of value when Jobs was forced out until he came back, right? So I think timeframes and timing are, are very important for this sort of discussion.
0: Yeah, it, absolutely. And it, that's why it was interesting to look at the 16 to 22 and the and the 19 to 22 so you could actually see what happened pre-COVID and post-COVID even to just get that window. But you're 100% right, I mean, the, the time you pick to go into a stock, particularly one like Apple, matters greatly. And I just know from when we went in at ARS, we went into Apple um, in 2011 after they came out with the iPad is when we went went in because we thought that was a game changer. And I can't tell you how many times we talked about selling that stock from that point forward.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And
0: actually, the argument back then was it was a $110 billion stock, which is really tough to grow 10, 15, 20 percent, those size companies. Um, and then you fast forward in there, you know, 2.6, closing on $3 trillion. And uh, you get a sense of how different the world is and how different the businesses are. But that's from 11 to now. They've had that kind of growth. So it's yeah. really phenomenal. And then you look at Meta, which has had massive value destruction in that period where you would have thought, given the tech was working so well, it would have been a good time for them to do. So you're 100% right, Michael, you really have to look inside it to see what's going on. But it's also a reminder that wealth accumulation does take time, that doesn't happen overnight, but you can destroy wealth pretty quick.
1: Andrew Voss. Thanks,
3: Stephen and Mark. Stephen, of the $60 trillion in net worth, was that the figure?
0: And back in, it was 60 trillion back in, uh, in 08. It's 145 now. or So So
3: of that 145, what's the percentage breakout of taxable versus non-taxable assets? Do you don't have, have that. you don't have figures like that? No. If you were to guess.
0: I mm, was the guess? I would say that, uh, I would say that, taxable is because you're having housing in that so if you just think about the uh, equity portion is probably a third to forty five percent of it um so um I would kind of think of it that way I would think it would be half of that or something like that so maybe a third of uh to a half of so about probably about a third maybe maybe that little less quarter to a so third
3: Roth IRAs and the like yeah
0: 401ks oh, yeah. or, or you know defined benefit plans would be in there as well so
3: sure okay
1: that was just a quick question thank you
0: Bill would probably know better because he's a uh trustee of a pension plan
1: and Bill we need to we need to talk I let's find some time next day or so yeah that'd be great that'd be great
5: uh yes to to the question on how much taxable versus non-taxable that's that it's an interesting question um because the average 401k balance is actually pretty low you know across the the whole uh spectrum so across the whole you know income demographics so i would say that real estate is probably the the lar- the lion's share you know of of that a, accumulated value in in uh, in real estate but then it's going to change you know, when you look at the various income brackets, it's going to change a lot um, because obviously the top, you know, 10%, 5%, 1%, their mix is going to be entirely different uh, from, so it's going to be driven a lot by those, you know, top, top earners. So anyway, um, but it's interesting to ponder. The other thing, the other interesting thing, kind of going back uh, one, one conversation back is, you know, fun fact. Amazon has had drawdowns of up to ninety four percent, and I I think you know over over time seeing drawdowns of thirty five percent is is not unusual within a twelve month period of time. So so it's it's a real it, even those those numbers are eye popping, but the uh, the road to it is is just laced with potholes of substantial size. Um, so it's. It, it poses an, an interesting question. Um, and, and in it for the long haul, it takes on entirely new meaning. But the, 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 the other, the, and the, so here's my question. <laughs> so, Stephen, with, with, uh, with PCE, you know, having come in, you know, both headline and core now down in and around the three and a half percent range, kind of to your point on with all the other tightening going on, I would think that the Fed has good reason to pause for a while now. So I saw saw a survey today
0: that I think the market is thinking that they're now they're moving the markets moving instead of it was four cuts before the last meeting. They moved it to two cuts at the last meeting. I think they may be moving it to one cut starting in Q3 of next year would be before you see the first cut. I don't think the Fed needs to do anything right now in terms of raising rates. And I think they'd be making a mistake if they tried to lower them right now. I think they need, to, I don't think they know. And I think Powell's been pretty clear that they don't know and, and people think he's playing games, but he's saying that it could go either way. This economy is much stronger than he thought, but the problems are big and that you could break very quickly with the wars uh, percolating around the world. So I think he's gonna play it cautiously and not do anything. I think you're right. I don't think he needs yeah. to do anything right now.
5: Right. No, I, I, I would agree that the the tight the the tightening that we don't see on the surface is a huge hammer. Yeah. We, we don't we don't we don't want that one to come down on us. That would be
0: pretty pretty awful. And and when you go in you know, I was out looking at cars for my kids. And you try and go to a car, get a car right now and go through the process of credit and all that. And you know, for the kids, it's it's really tough. Um, so I think there are, it is two very different economies. It's the one for everyone who has money and the one who doesn't for the people who don't. And uh, I think we're starting to see that gonna kind of become even a bigger issue as we move forward.
1: Jack Wyant, I see you on on camera. Um, how are you seeing the Heartland, and, and how, how are the Cincinnati teams doing, particularly the football team? You're on mute. You're going to owe us all a drink here in a second.
2: Yes, to so the Heartland, the Heartland is is healthier than the two coasts. So come out, come out and visit, so you can see it and feel it and hear it. As to the as to the teams, their records speak for themselves. Both of our soccer, both of our so-called football teams, scored big victories on uh, Sunday. But you know that's two days ago, so it's in the past. We've got a our soccer team has to play.
1: We, we've, in uh, we've Harrison. We've talked about coming to Cincinnati because all the games are going to be at home now, right?
2: Yeah. Well. No, we're playing we're playing in Harrison, New Jersey this Saturday. And then and then the following Sunday Saturday. Uh, out yeah. here, Saturday the 11th. Yeah. Out here. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. On the 11th.
0: Okay. Yeah, so Jack, I did. When's the, when's the big vote for you guys? Big part. When's the vote in Ohio? The, the vote? Yeah. There Problems.
2: there are two, They're 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 two biggies. Um, one one pertains to abortion, yep, and uh, the other is something else big. I'll have to stop and think. Uh, there's a there's a Cincinnati issue uh, that's a biggie in this exact part of the world where where we're going to sell for a billion six sell sell a, um, a railroad line that the city owns to a railroad. And and the debate is: Can we trust the government, the city government, to properly manage the 1.6 billion dollars of cash they're going to get?
1: But I saw our mayor, your mayor, was uh, pr- was promoting that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, Andy Fish has a question. Unless you had one, Jack
3: oh it was um uh, back on the much more boring topic um <laughs> Stephen was talking about two economies and um and the car loans actually car loan delinquencies are spiking like mad yeah um uh, uh new housing uh mortgage applications are near zero um and i was just talking to somebody uh down south who said that housing prices are starting to really crater which I haven't seen anywhere yet and and there's a housing shortage and, and so on and so forth. So I think it's very much two economies and even two worlds. I put up a chart where I keep getting things about the Japanese market and Japanese stocks, but, but the yen is hitting new lows. So if you price those stocks in U.S. dollars, they're not doing very well. So... Uh, there's all these different ways of looking at the same thing, and back to Stephen's comment. Stephen, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but
0: no, it's actually it's it is interesting. You know, they they also raised their uh, benchmark rate up to one percent now uh, in their ten-year um, up from fifty base points, which was twenty-five before that, and ten base points before that. It's hard when the dollar is when the when the U.S. has you know almost five percent interest rates and in the strength of our economy. To see how you're not going to attract a lot of capital from the rest of the world. And I think that's going to put more strains on other uh, currencies as well. It's also pushing governments to start, particularly adversary governments to the U.S., to increase their gold holdings and to start uh, buying more gold again. And I think that's one of the things that's pushing gold up a little bit now, too, is the push away from the dollar for adversarial countries back.
1: Jack, you want to say okay. Stephen, in, in
2: regard to car, the car loan point, how could it be if, if new car sales are hitting this year, the 17 million level, which, which in the, in the, in the automobile industry is happy days are here again?